Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. These programs are just one of several free services we provide to disseminate information about training for mountain sports. If you like what you hear and want more, please check out our website, uphillathlete.com, where you'll find many articles and our extensive video library on all aspects of training for and accomplishing a variety of mountain goals. You'll also find our forum where you can ask questions of our experts and the community at large. Our email is coach at uphillathlete.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Welcome to another episode of the Uphill Athlete podcast. Um, with me today is my good friend, Luke Nelson. Um, Luke's going to be talking with me today about his experience in the ultra running world. Um, and we'll probably dip our toes a little bit into his uh, ski mountaineering racing um, stuff as well. Uh, he, Luke and I have been working together, uh, been consulting with him on his coaching now for several years. And um, you know, so we've kind of got a, enough of a history together that I think we might be able to shed some light on you know, some of the things we've worked and uh, that we've worked, done that have worked really well, you know, how we've worked through certain circumstances, whether in regards to injury or fatigue or how we prepared for certain races. And I think there might be some, some valuable insights in there. But, um, but welcome, Luke. Thanks for showing up today. Thanks, Scott. Super happy to be here. Well, thanks for making time. We're going to talk a little bit about, more about this later because I know you, you are an incredibly busy person. You might be the busiest person I know. Um, and, and so it's remarkable what, you're man, what you manage to pack into a day and a week and a month. And, and uh, myself and everybody else I know that knows you all says exactly the same thing. So I don't think we're, we're, I don't think we're exaggerating this. So, but let's not go there quite yet. Um, we've got a lot of fun things to talk about today, but let's start, first of all, how did you get involved in mountain sports? I know you were kind of a, a competition rock climber when you were a kid, right? Yeah. So I grew up outside. Um, my dad works for the Boy Scouts. So every summer of my life was spent at a Boy Scout camp growing up from when I was an infant all the way until my, the, my middle teens. Uh, a lot of that time was unsupervised because my dad would be at work. My mom was working alongside of him. And so I would just spend time kind of free ranging as a young person in, in the woods. And uh, so I, I think that that's where my, my connection to, to, to being in the mountains and wild places was formed just as a youth being outside. Uh, it also, because of his work, it made it difficult for me to participate in normal sports uh, a lot of those things like t-ball or whatever happened during the summer when we would be gone um, but I was introduced in kind of alternative sports he took me rock climbing for the first time when I was five years old um, and we did some mountaineering when I was young and backpacking and as I think that my first climbing competition was when I was 10 uh, that was the time when gym climbing competitions were just starting to happen in the early 90s uh, one of the, the last major competitions I did, I remember get, getting beat badly by this guy named Tommy. Uh, it turns out that was uh, Tommy Caldwell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who has um, gone on to some pretty notable accomplishments. He's, he's yeah. done all right in the climbing yeah. world. Um, and, and so rock climbing was a passion of mine for quite a long time. Alongside that, I also uh, was very passionate about snowboarding and skateboarding. Uh, led to a uh, career about a six, six year long career as a uh, sponsored professional snowboarder. 
um, which was super cool for me in the heyday of snowboarding in the late nineties and early two thousands and, uh, created all sorts of wild stories that, uh, we could share on a, a totally different setting. Um, and, and, and as I kind of aged those sports, the, the snowboarding in particular, the kind of huck and chuck lifestyle, uh, started to catch up to me and I wanted to find a little better relationship with the mountains. Uh, when my daughter, who's now 13, when she was born, uh, I was also really into kayaking as well. And uh, there was an experience where a friend of mine was killed kayaking about the time she was born and helped me kind of reevaluate my relationship with risk, what I was willing to do. Um, I'd had a rock climbing accident prior to that. Uh, I fell lead climbing, fractured my skull, uh, which kind of took the wind out of my rock climbing aspirations. And when she was born, uh, a friend inter- introduced me to trail running and it became this incredible way for me to continue with my connection outside in wild places in the mountains, but bringing the risk level down to what I felt was a lot more comfortable and controllable. Um, and it wasn't long after I started running that I started to make a profession out of it. Uh, my first sponsors came on about a year after I started trail running. And and when was that? Roughly? Um, that would be uh, 14 years ago now. Okay. So uh, is that 2006, 2007? Are you giving away your age here, Luke? Yeah, I may be. <laughs> I may be a little bit. I think I'm getting old. <laughs> you did just do a remarkable thing on your 40th birthday that we're going to get to um, in a little bit. But um, so then you've been in this essentially professional athlete a good part of your adult life then it, you know, one form or another. Yeah. But you also have this closet career, um, as a, uh, why don't you describe what you do in the, you know, when you're not in your Superman suit, when you're in your Clark Kent suit. <laughs> so I work as a physician assistant. Uh, I'm a partner in an orthopedics and sports medicine practice. And just actually in August, I celebrated my 10th year of being a PA. So all of this kind of blossoming into trail running and endurance sports happened while I was going to PA school and while I'd been managing a career as a, as a PA. And anybody who has ever spent a lot of time standing on concrete can have a great deal of sympathy for how you spend a a large part of your days, And that's remarkable to me. Um, you know, when I was going through college and I, I had a part-time job working as a machinist and for actually a small climbing company, you might remember Forest Mountaineering yeah. back in, you know, a long time ago. So I was the, like the head machinist for Forest and I would, my legs would be so dead at the end of the day that the idea of going out and running 10 miles after standing on concrete for several hours, how do you, do you think you've just conditioned yourself to where you that doesn't phase you as much. I know there are times when you tell me, boy, I had, you know, I just had a 12 hour stint in the operating room. I don't think I'm going to do this workout today, but, but how have you, how do you think you managed to handle that kind of load? Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, part of my job is first assist in the OR on, on spine cases and those are notoriously long cases. Um, so at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, I'm in the operating room for extended periods of time. And those surgical cases could be six to eight hours long for one case. And uh, I'll be standing in one place for that entire time, 
really without moving much. Um, I, you know, I've, I've adapted several different small things that help me during those cases, things like wearing compression tights or compression socks or both in the really long cases, um, using, um, a sequential compression device, uh, something like a Norma tech in between cases. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, it, it, a lot of ways it's the hardest thing that I'll do in a week as far as physically, uh, I'll come out, you know, pretty tired from those. And, and the best thing for it a lot of times is to go for a run or go for get on my bike and, and shake the legs out, uh, the way that training works out. Sometimes that's a hard workout on those days. And like you said, there's times where I, I just don't have it in the legs to, to do it. And, and the smart choice is to delay those workouts for another day. Um, but there's other days where it's, it's okay. Once you get things, get the crud busted out after standing all day and warm up for a half an hour and you can still get the workout done. You feel pretty decent at the end. Yeah. It's yeah. That, it can be hard getting out the door, but I think there's nothing worse than standing still. I mean, I think standing still for four hours is worse than running for four hours. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely yeah. feel way worse after standing in one spot than I would for running. Yeah. Well, that doesn't even take into we've now covered your running a little bit about your athletic career, your, your work life, but I also know you have a really, you have a big family and you have a very close knit family and you spend a lot of time with your kids. How, how many, tell us about your family, how many kids so, tell us yeah. about your wife? Uh, my, my partner and I today, we have three incredible children. Our oldest is 13. Uh, we have a 10 year old and about to be six year old, two oldest of girls, little boy, uh, our, my oldest daughter's on the mountain bike team, uh, and is an incredible athlete. Um, and our younger two are, are blossoming into that as well. Uh, so we, we certainly make it a priority to, to introduce them to these mountain sports that, that we love so much, you know, skiing or snowboarding and, um, trail running, mountain biking. And, uh, that takes time too. Um, it's, it's tricky finding enough time in the day often. Um, but, but it's a priority of mine to, to be able to spend some time with them and with my wife, uh, on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. 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 Keep that connection. It's important for sure. Yeah. They need to remember who I am at least. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I think she, she must be incredible. I mean, I know she is incredibly supportive of what you do. I mean, she has gone to a lot of your races with you and supported you on a number of big challenging things you've done. And, I mean, it's great to see that, that bond that you guys have, have developed. And it is truly a partnership that you know, when you have someone like that, you can lean on and, and vice versa. Um, you know, I know you just gave her um, a, some support on a long run that she did in the mountains not too long ago. Um, yeah, but- I feel really fortunate. I mean, th- I, I would absolutely not be where I am professionally as an athlete or in my medical profession without her just unwavering support. Um, she, she's amazing. I don't know anyone on the planet who is incredible as she is. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and this summer she set some big goals. Both of us turned 40 this year and, uh, for her 40th, she wanted to accomplish a few things. And one of those was to run 50 miles. Um, and it was awesome to be able to flip the roles and have me be able to crew her for her 50 mile run. Uh, and she also wanted to climb the grand Teton. So we did uh, a couple of warm-up events, and then uh, the day before her 40th birthday, we summited the Grand Teton together, which was outstanding. It's a great way to spend a birthday, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. 
Well, speaking of birthdays, I just had my birthday a couple days ago, and I didn't do anything nearly as interesting as you did, except I got my knee replaced on um, on my birthday. So that's still was, a big deal. That was definitely a big deal, but not the kind of thing you're going to celebrate. I suppose. I mean, I'll be celebrating it in a you know few months from now when I'm out there running again. But oof, it's, it's been a little bit of a rough week for me. Um, so you've had you've kind of done the gamut of these mountain races, you know, whether they're races or uh, a lot of events that that are known as FKTs or fastest known times on on certain um, courses. And what appeals to you? Why did I'm sure they have different appeals? The the races versus these FKT challenges. What what do you get out of the two of them that that it's different? For me, I think it's been quite an evolution. Uh, early on in my running career, I was most interested in racing um, and, and particular races, mountain races and difficult mountain races. I spent a, a decade uh, racing around the world, um, particularly re- interested in sky running races. I spent a lot of time chasing the sky running uh, world series. And as I progressed in my career and had success and, and did good, even on the international stage with races, one of the things that I found is there were limitations to where races could be held uh, and places that inspired me. And those didn't always line up uh, where a race might be held in the U.S. at a ski area because that's the place they could get a permit. And the mountains next to that ski area were far more inspiring to me. I felt this drift or a pull towards FKTs and, and a fastest known time can be run anywhere. There aren't restrictions on permitting because you're doing it on your own time. You're not doing it as a big organized event with other competitors. And it boils down to the athlete, the terrain, and the clock. It really simplifies what the competition becomes. And those could be done in places that were really inspiring to me. And so for the last several years of my my career as as an athlete, those have been the thing that I've been most excited about chasing uh, are, you know, particularly challenging mountainous FKTs. And, and you've racked up quite a few impressive ones. Um, so why don't you run us through a, a short list of those, if you don't mind? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the highlights for me uh, would be, some of these have since been broken. Uh, actually, I think most of them have. Um, but the uh, Idaho 12ers FKT, so the continuous push through all uh, nine of the 12,000-foot peaks in Idaho, uh, the Utah 13 or so the 13, 13,000 foot peaks in Utah, uh, the Wasatch ultimate Ridge link up, uh, which is an incredible run slash scrambling route in the Wasatch mountains. Uh, and then most recently, uh, for my 40th, I was able to, uh, crack the fastest time on a hundred mile route also in the Wasatch mountains near Salt Lake called the Millwood. Yeah, that was, and that was just a few days ago. Um, yeah. Or a week ago or so. A <laughs> week guess, ago right? now. Yeah. 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 Um, and that one was kind of a cap for the end of the season, really, wasn't it? I mean, that was the way you viewed this as, okay, you've, everything's been canceled this year. There's really not much. You know, it's hard to travel. And so, you know, you and, and I talked to Mike Foote just a couple of weeks ago, similarly about this kind of stuff. And I think a lot of people have been casting around looking for you know, what do I do with all this fitness that I've just spent months and months building up? And um, what drew you to this? Other, I know, other than the fact you, I know you like the Wasatch Mountains a lot and they're not too far from where you live. 
Yeah, the, the Millwood was was intriguing for a couple of reasons. Uh, one was the low number of people who have actually been able to finish the route. Uh, it was created in ten, 2010, and up until this summer, there had only been 10 finishes. Um, this summer alone, there had been six more, um, and I, I think it might even be to 17 or 18 now uh, total finishes. Um, but the, the, the difficulty of the route was, was one of the big draws. It wasn't going to be a gimme. Uh, it's a, it's a full, almost exactly to the decimal point, a hundred miles. Um, it has just shy of 40,000 feet of ascent. Um, and it was also a combination of off trail and trail. Uh, there were some sections that were pretty significant bushwhacking even. Uh, so the, so just the, the additional elements that, that made it, less likely to finish was what drew me to it. And that may sound ironic, but the, 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 the nearness to impossibility was what I found exciting. And I mean, that's got to be the similar allure to the Barclays marathon. Which it is. I know you were very disappointed. I, we were both very disappointed when that got canceled this year, because I think you were in a really good place training wise, fitness wise to, you were really ready for that. Um, have you heard any word about that race for next year? Do you think there's any chance it'll happen? You know, I think it's pretty likely that it happened, and I, I hope that I get accepted again. Um, uh, rumor is we might get a, a good chance uh, to be accepted because of being accepted last year and not having the event. And and I am I was so disappointed initially when it was canceled that the training leading up to that had been – I was seeing benchmarks that I'd never seen before in training. I was really excited to, to test that. And then to cap off the training was the trip to Nepal with Mike and David and Mike, uh, where we had really the experience of a lifetime training at altitude in Nepal, came back to the world being changed with COVID and, um, interestingly was able to carry both motivation and fitness from that moment all the way through the summer uh, to this kind of cap off with Millwood, which, uh, I, I think as I watched the running community as a whole, a lot of people struggled with motivation during the summer, uh, once races got canceled and, and people's events or goals kind of fell apart, but, uh, it didn't, it wasn't hard for me to stay motivated, um, which I found kind of interesting. Well, you got a pretty high level of stoke most of the time, I think, so <laughs> I can, uh, <laughs> motivation does not seem to be in short supply um, when I'm talking to you about, you know, usually <laughs> as soon as you're done with one brutal thing, it's okay, what's the next deal we're going to do? I, um, and and you, you might, do you hold the record for being turned down for the hard rock more than anybody else? I mean, you, I'm pretty close. I think there might be one or two other people that are in the application process about where I'm at, but uh, the next time that I'll be able to apply, which will be next year because they rolled everyone over from this year's canceled event. I think I will now be at 12 years. 12 years of being turned down. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll be keeping our fingers crossed for that one. I know one day, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe for your 50th birthday, There we go. <laughs> another 10 years. What's another 10 years. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so when you do these grueling FKTs, like, I mean, you did Nolan's just uh, a couple of years ago, right? With Jared was, did you yeah. do that? With Jared, yep. 
Um, yep, yep. Jared, Jared Campbell and I did that. And, you know, and yeah. several of these things, like the 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 Whirl and the uh, the, the uh, Idaho Twelvers, have pretty, pretty demolishing. Um, you know, <laughs> and you've written about that in some detail for our website, which is great because I think it's gr- nice when you can bear your, your soul like that. And and a lot of people, you know, would when they when they hear of feats like this. They just assume that oh you must be so superhuman how you know I mean it is an, an amazing accomplishment but it takes a toll on you right I mean those are you're not bouncing back from stuff like that really quickly yeah and I, I think as the older I get the more um, impact they take or the longer the recovery is afterwards mm-hmm. um, but the the draw to these events that are so challenging the it, it brings up the importance of, of taking care of yourself, both leading up to an event like it and doing the appropriate training and then honoring the recovery process afterwards and not jumping back in too quickly. That, that's what I see. You know, I've written about this on the website. We, you, you and Mike helped me put together that article on the overtraining elephant in the room and the ultra training world or ultra running world. And, and I've, I see it a lot with endurance athletes and it, I hear these stories and some of them are amazingly impressive about people doing hundred mile races and then, you know, doing a month later doing another one. <clears throat> so far that has not been my experience with certainly with you and Mike. And I, I wonder if it has, that has had something to do with your longevity and your ability to continue building from year to year rather than, you know, having a, a year or two that are just, packed full of you know hard races and hard training and then it's hard it's just very hard to maintain that level of both psychologically and physically but would you say that this honoring that recovery process has been a key component to your ability to sustain this really high level yeah absolutely and I, you know over the last decade i've watched i would say it's probably dozens at this point of incredibly gifted runners um just bury themselves you know they they come in they're excited they race one race after another race after another race and then they disappear from the scene um and the 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 backstory that that a lot of people we don't get is is what happened and i think that they just get too deep physiologically for their body to recover uh for them to be able to even train or perform at the level that they once did um I often joke with friends that are in the community that the best thing that's happened to my professional running career is my medical career uh, because it limits how much I can do. You know, I I have to be able to go to work and I have to be able to maintain. uh, And so it, you know, it cuts back on the number of training hours and it it forces recovery periods that, that otherwise a full-time athlete only professional athlete would, would, wouldn't have those restrictions. You know, and one of the workarounds that you and I have developed over the years that I, people I think might be interested in is people, I think the normal um, view of ultra runners is that they're out there logging hundred plus mile weeks, you know, every week, week after week after week. And, um, and you and I have taken a different approach because of your lifestyle and your, your, your profession. It wouldn't allow, you could not run, hundred mile weeks, you know, even if you chose to do it, really, you, yeah. even if, if, even if we decided that was a good thing for you, it just wasn't on the table. And you and I have developed some workarounds and some strategies that I think would be worthwhile talking to people about, and maybe even giving some examples leading up to 
for instance, the, 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 a really notable race for you was the Tour de Géant. Um, was that now three years ago almost? Yeah, 2018. So yeah, two yeah, years ago. Okay. Two years ago. Um, all these numbers run together at my <laughs> age. <laughs> um, so anyway, two years ago, and that was in early September. And give us some details about that race, uh, the length and the time and the vertical and that sort of thing. Yeah, so Tour de Géant is... Um, the year that I raced at the course was uh, 231 miles long. Uh, the vertical gain was just shy of 100,000 feet of ascent and 100,000 feet of descent uh, held in the uh, Italian Alps, uh, the Italian side of Mont Blanc, Cormier, the Aosta Valley, uh, which is probably one of the most beautiful places on the planet to go for a long run. Um, and the, the race for me, uh, went incredibly well as a first time Tour de Giant runner. Uh, I finished eighth. Uh, my time was 85 hours, uh, 21 minutes and some odd seconds. Um, and just a demanding event to, to the levels that I had never experienced prior. And I think my weekly mileage building up to that was around 53. I think I, think if it I was recall less. the number correctly. I, maybe less. <laughs> I think the nine, the nine, I, I did a little calculation about this, and I believe the, the nine months prior to that race, your average weekly mileage was 48 or 49. Wow. Yeah. So pretty low mileage for somebody training for an event like that. But it, so I think it, it bears us talking about what, what did we do that helped make you as fatigue resistant as you were for that race, because one of the principal mechanisms of fatigue for long distance events are, is that the sort of neurologic neuromuscular fatigue where your legs just kind of give out after a while. I mean, you're able to fuel enough because you're not moving that fast. You can actually eat and keep, you know, your, your, the carbohydrate intake, uh, you know, at a reasonable level. So it's not necessarily, if you, if you do a, a good fueling strategy, you're not, you're not running out of energy. You're not, you're not bonking. Right. But anybody who's run long distance in the mountains can, can, can appreciate the fact that when your legs go, they go. And they usually go from all the downhill. Um, you know, from that pounding on the downhills. And so to my way of thinking, one of the ways I've approached training ultra runners is what you really want to achieve is this uh, unfatigability of the legs. Let me use it that way. We want to make the legs so they just are much more fatigue resistant. And there's, I believe there's two ways of doing that. One is with accumulating a really high volume of training on, in the mountains, on the trails, a lot of up and down. And the other is to, you still need to do a lot of that trail running um, in the mountains, but, the, but we added, what we did is we reduced the volume of your normal running and we added in these specific muscular endurance workouts that I believe have a really powerful training effect on this uh, durability factor that we're talking about or this you know, fatigue resistance in the, in the legs. And I've, I believe that it, it has, you know, I've used that now for almost 20 some years with different athletes. And actually, no, it started in 1992 when I was coaching a guy for the, um, right before the Olympics in cross country skiing in 92. And I started playing around with some of these ideas that I had learned from a, a speed skating coach about this, what they call local muscular endurance. And 
I began to play with different ways of doing it. And then I experimented on myself and other athletes. And I went, whoa, this is like secret sauce here. And since then, I've you know, refined it and played around with it. And I, it's, I've come to realize that there's a, about a thousand different ways to do this that are probably all really effective. I don't think there's anything especially special about the way we have approached it. We, what we do, I think, works quite well, but it's not the only way that it could be done. And you know, people that are interested in that, we've got a, quite a bit of information, both in the Training for the Uphill Athlete book, as well as on the website. The, we've got a PDF you can download and take home and read and, and follow. This is essentially the same workout that Luke was doing leading into the Tour de Géant, and that I, don't have, I haven't counted how many other events we've prepared you for using that, but it's kind of become our go-to prep thing, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the, the kind of potency of the training effect of this. And I, I very clearly remember the first couple of weeks of incorporating this. And, you know, it was, we were doing the gym-based ME at the time. And I would, I would do the workout. I'd knock through the workout and feel really good. And then for days afterwards would just be almost crippled with soreness. And um, it, it, would it took probably oh, three months or so of doing this on a regular basis before I felt like I was actually able to, to use that workout and run well and do additional things because it was such a powerful workout. And just doing it once a week was initially all that I could, could handle. And I think that highlighted two things, one, how powerful of a workout it is. And two, how un, uh, trained I was on those systems. Uh, so it made it just this incredible, uh, space for growth. And in Tortoise Johnson in particular, going in with relatively low weekly mileage, the last, um, uh, from cold to Malatra down. So uh, I don't know, 15 miles, 10 miles, somewhere in there, I was able to run like run and, and move quickly uh and my legs were held up they 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 weren't they weren't the noodles the wet noodles that i would have expected them to be after being out for three days of of, of running through the mountains so yeah um, it's it is awesome it is a powerful training tool and it has but it's a little bit like playing with dynamite and you've got to know what you're doing you've got to ease your way into it and um yeah, it's, it's it's easy to get ex too excited with it and maybe ramp up too quickly, um, but it's certainly something that you know I've come to rely on working with a lot of the athletes and a lot of the coaches here at Uphill Athlete have adopted it, using it with you know everything from you know mountaineers to uh, to runners and and seen really um, powerful training effect with it. Um, that before the uh, Tour de Géant we, you did 16 week block of that. Yeah. So it was long enough to get through that initial phase of, um, of you know, the super sore, like the worst delayed onset muscle soreness you may have ever had in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And interestingly, what I have noticed with that, that, that workout is the fast twitch athletes don't have much problem with it. They recover really quickly from it, but most of the people we work with are kind of on the slow twitch end of the spectrum, and they suffer mightily. And the further you are on that slow twitch end of the spectrum, the more you suffer from those workouts. Um, but it, so a long block, a long training block like you did can have this really powerful training stimulus, 
But what I've noticed is even four, six, eight weeks of that, if you can get a little, and we've done that with you, kind of some little mini blocks, we just didn't have time to get in that full progression still works quite well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I, I would encourage people to, to mess around with it. And you know, again, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing scientific about this. I mean, I could explain, I think the science behind it. I've, I've gleaned a bit of information from this, from, like I said, from the, the U S speed skating coach back in the, the late eighties, early nineties. And then from um, Yuri Verkashansky, the famous Russian um, strength coach uh, who wrote kind of a, a whole dissertation on, on this process that, um, that really opened my eyes to, oh, there's a possible thing here that we could be using. And I've used it with a lot of top cross-country World Cup skiers as well and seen, seen big gains with it. Um, so for those of you that don't have either mountains you know, near your home or 25 hours a week to spend out there in the mountains, this can be a pretty good way to make up for some of that. And I think that... You know, as I mentioned, the, 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 the standard routine would just be to go out and run 100 miles a week with a lot of vertical in it. And that will build this durability in your legs. But it also comes with a pretty high cost of its own in terms of, you know, whether it's joint injuries or its own delayed onset muscle soreness that can come from that kind of stuff. And what I feel like we've found as a really good recipe for you with these workouts has been that the, we know they're going to be hard. We know we can plan two or three you know, easy recovery days afterwards, but it's kind of concentrating all of that loading into just one workout. And rather than you know, going out the door and beating yourself up with you know, 20 mile runs four or five times a week um, on, on really hilly terrain, and I feel like we've been able to sort of keep away from the injury area almost yeah. entirely with you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that the, the, the important part is that the, the ME workouts do need to be coupled with, with running. You can't eliminate running completely, but it allows you to have a much lower volume and still carry through. And it, it's just, it's incredible how, how effective it has been. Well, and it, I, it, would you say that has contributed to, well, obviously things like you just mentioned in the Tour de Géant, that last you know, 15 kilometers of running downhill, you, in, in a normal case, you would have been really struggling with super fatigued legs going down that, and you weren't. You, you know, I remember you excitedly told me right after the race, like, I ran the fastest of the whole race in the last 10 kilometers. Yeah, it was incredible. And I, I think that... I mean, if I look back to events that I did prior to working with you and prior to working with these ME workouts is I often was finishing just on fumes and, and just destroyed at the end of, of these big long runs. And, and multiple times now, the tour, uh, Millwood, um, I had leg strength and been able to push and, and chase at the end, those last little bits of time that I've, I was hoping to gain. Um, and, and I think that the ME has, a significant amount to do with that. Well, in, in the, in the Millwood, it made the difference between actually cracking that time, the, the, you know, getting the fastest known time or not. Cause you, you only broke it by how many minutes? Six, six minutes. Yeah. <laughs> six minutes after 31 hours and 33 minutes, uh-huh. it's only six minutes faster than the previous record. Yeah. So you had to put the hammer down. Yeah. I came into the final kind of crew spot and I had done the math wrong in my head. I thought I had seven miles left. Turns out I had 11. 
I thought it was about 3,000 feet of climbing. It was 4,300 feet of climbing. Um, and it was uh, three o'clock in the afternoon and I had to be done to, to break the record before 540 in the afternoon. And so that last 11 miles with 4,000 feet of climbing had to go down in two and a half hours. Um, and it, it, it didn't even compute. My, my brain was so just mashed potatoes from, from being awake all night and pushing that, uh, you know, I had friends that because it was my birthday run, we had a party lap for that last 11 miles and four friends went left the trail, that last trail with me. And, uh, we pushed and pushed and pushed and I ran as hard as I could, um, just hammering and, uh, come in just hot. Um, the, the, the friends that were waiting at the finish line and my wife was there and they were surprised at how quickly we came down those last, you know, hundred yards where they could see us, mm-hmm. um, because it just wouldn't be normal to finish an event like that so quickly. Well, I think it's, um, it's cool that you have, well, I mean, it's a fun thing that we've stumbled on this and, you know, been able to refine it. And you now, now it's, we can rely on it, you know, and we, we know how to do this pretty much to get you ready for these things. And, um, you know, we can tweak things and change, lengthen or shorten the, the training block with them. What, before we leave that subject, I want to mention to folks that it has been my observation using now this muscular endurance for all these many years is that you will feel, and you can confirm this because I think you really noticed it in the Tour de Géant, but you, you will feel the positive training effects of a, an extended block of muscular endurance training for about as long afterwards as you did the block. So in other words, if you do 10 weeks of muscular endurance training, you're going to have about 10 weeks of positive training effect as it is. It will of course, slowly taper off. Um, but you'll be doing something else during that 10 weeks, hopefully to keep the stimulus going. But it's, that's kind of an interesting, um, uh, concept. It's another one of those Verkashansky concepts with that he called the long-term delayed training effect where a concentrated block of a certain type of training will have this delayed training effect that you'll feel the benefits. And so we were able to, in your case, with the, um, uh, in the Tour de Géant, we had a fairly extensive, like when we ended that period of muscular endurance, we went into a more conventional period of uphill, high intensity aerobic intervals, like you know, people would normally do on your, your, your hill near your home called what we call the stupid steep hill. Um, and, but that was relatively short. That was only about maybe six weeks, I think, five or six weeks of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think overall the time from when we did the last muscular endurance workout until I was at the starting line, I think it was about seven weeks, Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe eight. And uh, that's one other thing I would note with this is it's actually important to make sure you do have some taper time uh, between that last ME workout and your event, because it does, it does take such a toll on your legs that, you need to make sure that it's properly recovered um, yeah. and that, that, then that you're fresh um, instead of kind of the, the mushiness that it can create um, for extended periods of time. Absolutely. That's a really good point. Yeah. To have that um, some sort of recovery between, and, and usually as I recall, when we, when we ended the ME block of training and we shifted to intervals, it, you were seeing gains every week in your interval workouts for about the first three to four weeks, like every workout you'd get faster and stronger. Yeah. I think you were, you were coming out of that hole of fatigue that we had created with that long, that extended um, muscular endurance block of training. 
it was quite surprising to me that even the first time when I still felt like a lot of, a lot of the effect of the ME workouts, that the times were faster. I mean, and, and then it was, it was literally on that stupid steep hill. It was PR after PR after PR. Um, even when we were increasing the number of intervals up the hill, the PRs just kept coming and it was definitely highlighting just the, the potency of that workout. Yeah. Well, I don't want to tell people this is a magic bullet, but if there is one, this is as close as I've ever found to one. Um, yeah, and it works for, like I said, for all these different sports, it works really well. Um, so some of the things like, we've talked a little bit about this, how you've been able to maintain this stoke, you know, especially through this COVID period where everybody's had their, their rug pulled out from under them with regards to plans and races and that sort of thing. Would you say that, one of the keys, because this is knowing you now the, the way I do, that for you, that the process is as important, if not more important even, than the end result, what it takes to get there, and that you you actually embrace that process incredibly well. Anybody who does these things has to embrace it to some extent. But it seems like that has allowed you to weather, especially this this summer, this rough patch where there were no no real races. But can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I uh, we've talked about this some, and and I've talked about it with friends. And I think that for me, uh, I, I see myself more as a practitioner of the craft of moving through the mountains, and the daily practice is as important to my life, my my well-being, my soul, whatever you want to define that as, um, it's every bit as important, if not more important than races are. Um, and the, the interesting part is balancing training versus practicing the craft where they often overlap, but there can be differences there. Um, and so it, if I, I find it really easy to stay motivated to go out for a run because I love going out for a run and yeah. the, 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 being able to have a, a big event or a race um, is a way to celebrate the craft, but it doesn't define the craft for me. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the craft is, is that daily practice and, uh, and the variety of, of, of workouts or pushing myself physically uh, during that practice is really what makes it just almost no brainer to keep the stoke high because I just love to do it. Yeah. Well, you know, when, when I first started, not first started, but when I'd been working with Steve for some time, this is, of course, you know what now, 20 years ago, um, he said that his friends stopped calling him to go climbing because they would call and say, hey, let's, we're going to go climb this or that. And he'd go, well, boy, I'd love to go climbing, but I have to train. And um, so he had developed this same sense of, you know, this, this craft that he was trying to perfect and sometimes it overlapped with climbing, but other times it didn't necessarily overlap with climbing. And, it, you know, it can be very, some of it can be pretty routine and boring and, you know, to get your, you know, put your shoes on and get out that door and go for a 10 mile run or whatever it is, you know, and it's on the same trail you've run a thousand times, and, yeah. um, but it, it has to be done. And I think having that you know, sort of process-oriented goals versus outcome-oriented goals has certainly been one of the factors that has helped me, and I know obviously it's helped you. And when I was coaching a lot of uh, young junior cross-country skiers, you know, they would come to me with these, I want to go to the Olympics. And I said, well, that's great. That's a wonderful dream to have. 
but why don't we make this about this process that will get you to the stage where then that might become a reality for you. And so we can develop these sort of intermediate um, goals that are all moving you in that direction with the process, but they may not look like the Olympics. You know, maybe in, you know, for skiers, it's going to be, you know, certain technical skill sets that they need to perfect um, or strength training or, you know, there's a whole myriad of things that go together to, to make up a, a good athlete. And some of them, may look like the Olympics, but most of them are, are going to just look like some kind of boring thing you got to do. And, and if you, but I've found that by breaking these, um, this process down into smaller and more incremental steps that gives somebody a, like a roadmap, like, Oh, this is what I need to do, you know, and I'll do these things for this next six weeks. And then I'm going to shift and do these things. And, and I mean, I, my goal is going to be to by in this few weeks is to develop these skills or these strengths or this capacity, whatever it is. And, you know, over years and years, like you've done now that has, you've got this enormous base that has allowed you to, to do all this. Whereas if you had, you know, maybe and going back to that thing where, you talked about earlier where a lot of the folks you know that jumped into the sport and just went, you know, whole hog with it for a couple of years and then completely blew up. It was as if like the race was the important part for them, you know, the, the results of that race. And, um, and they, without it, they didn't seem to, they didn't maybe have the, the stoke like you've developed over these years. You know, and, the, and the percentage of time that, that an athlete spends preparing for an event, you know, use the Olympics as the example. I mean, it's, it's thousands, tens of thousands of hours of process for a, an hour long event, you know, and, and if you don't absolutely love that process, you won't make it to that event, that celebration of the process. Yeah. Um, and, and if, the whole process is defined by succeeding at one event. I think you're, you're setting up a house of cards that, that mm-hmm. one bad event. And then you question whether the process was worth it or not. Exactly. Yeah. Speaking of that, I was, uh, I, I heard a interview with, um, I've forgotten his name now, the man who was Usain Bolt's coach. And so this was before, you know, when he first you know, launched himself onto the scene, maybe was it 2012 in London when he just blew everybody away? Um, you know, I, I mean, you probably, everybody can probably remember watching that race and think this is yeah. inhuman. Um, but so he, he ran two, two events there. The first one was the 100 at you know, roughly 10 seconds. And the second one was the 200 at roughly 20 seconds. And his coach said he had about over a thousand hours of preparation that year, that year alone for less than 30 seconds of event. Wow. And that's, that's not very much payback. At least your events last for you know, hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and, but, um, but it just goes, it's kind of, it's obviously on the very extreme end, but I think it can help people wrap your head around the fact that, you know, if that's what it takes and, you know, he obviously, you know, he is a phenomenal person to have achieved what he's achieved, but he had to have embraced that uh, process because he did it for yeah. years and years of this enormous time commitment for and, and the, and the guy said that even in the course of a whole season, he only raced about four or five minutes 
an entire season, but with a thousand hours of training. So on top of that thousand hours of training, a thousand hours of recovery and Mm -hmm. thousands and hours of good nutrition. And you know, the, all of the peripheral things that, that, that are included in that exceptional performance. Well, so besides, we've talked about these, you know, you and your phenomenal performances and Usain Bolt and his phenomenal performances, but a lot of folks aren't at that level yet, or, and, and they do aspire to that. What kind of advice would you give to folks that are kind of getting started and dipping a toe into this arena of mountain running or other mountain sports? Um, what are some sage points of wisdom that you'd, you'd hand out? Well, now that I'm an old man, I think I can give out uh, advice. Um, I, I would think that the, the first piece of advice, uh, especially if it's a younger athlete, the, the advice I'd give them is uh, take the long view. You know, have a plan of what you want running or moving in the mountains to look like for you in a decade or in two decades. Um, and not just fixate on what next race season looks like or what your next event is, but look down the road, um, and, and make sure that you're honoring that process that you're training appropriately, that can be maintained for a long period of time that you're looking at your work and home life balance and, and, and accepting the fact that there may be additional stressors that reduce the amount of running that you can do or the training that you can do and, and just embracing that process. So you've got the long view. I think that would be one of the big things that I would share. And it, it's certainly easy. I, I mean, again, having coached juniors for so much of my coaching career, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that kids, but especially their parents make with them is thinking, oh, if my kid's not, you know, setting the world on fire by the time they're 18 or 20, um, you know, there's no hope for them. And certainly there are sports like that, you know, like gymnastics being one of them. But in these kind of things that we're talking about, people aren't going to be coming into their prime years until at least they're 30 years old um and and it takes years and years to build to that and i can recall with one of the young women that i coached who uh, in cross-country skiing who ended her career very successfully um she had several the last two or three seasons on the world cup she was ranked in the top five or six overall and in her junior years she was good for sure, but she was never like head and shoulders above all these other girls. There were so many girls that were just incredible standouts at that, you know, in their teens compared to her that within two or three years were gone. They were just not even skiing anymore. And I think what, what the mistake that many people can make, and I want to bring this back around to, to you or to people trying to train like Killian, for instance, we see a lot of that people trying to, (laughs) I want to be like Killian Jornet. And that's a pretty dangerous thing to do. But what people will do is look at what high level athletes do. Look at something like what you do for the the amount of work you can pack into a week or look at um, what a world cup cross country skier does for training and think, Oh, that's appropriate for my 16 year old. And I think that's the biggest mistake I see or even appropriate for themselves when they're just starting out at 24 years old or 26 years old or something, and they don't have much training background. And they say, Oh, but look at how, you know, Iliad Kipchoge does these workouts and he just broke two hours for the marathon. So I should do those workouts. (laughs) And I think that's a terrible disservice that 
in some ways the the running community as a whole and the the media does is they they you know running magazines will put this out there you know here's Iliad Kipchoge's workouts for the last six weeks before he broke the world record. Well, that's great, but it's what he did the last 15 years that really counts, yeah. not these last six weeks. He could have done probably almost anything in the last six weeks and still performed very well. And I think that that mistake of copying what the elites do, um, there's things to be gleaned from it for sure. There's definitely you know things to be to be uh, gained by looking closely at how elite level athletes train. But I think that it's such a dangerous thing to try to copy. Let's say somebody who's a genetic freak like, like Usain Bolt or Killian Jornet. Um, you, you copy something, somebody like that and if you don't happen to have their training history and their lucky draw of the genetic cards, you're probably gonna end up in a heap in a matter of a few weeks or months with, you know, injuries yeah. and overtraining and that sort of thing. And so I, that's where I think you know, the stuff we've done, you and I have done when we're working together, these, these things are doable by normal people. You don't have to be a Killian Journey to train this way. Would you say? I, I totally agree. I mean, if you, if you pull back and look at it from a big lens, I mean, I have a full-time job, I have a family and I, I train 15 hours a week, uh, kind of at the top end of it, you know? And, um, I, I think that that number of 15 hours is something that represents decades of work that I can tolerate that workload combined with the stresses of work and family. Um, and someone trying to come into this new, maybe as a, as a young athlete or someone who's joining or starting running in their thirties or forties or fifties or whatever it is, um, it just needs to be approached with a long-term view um, yeah, and trying absolutely. to do what, what I do, which is probably more manageable than what Killian does. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it would just, it would just be asking for a much shorter career than they aspire to have. Most people, yeah, they aren't thinking that long-term either there. And, and we all think we're bulletproof until something breaks. <laughs> and, then, yeah. Yeah, and, once <laughs> it, and then once it breaks and we're stuck picking up the pieces. Um, well, let's wrap up by, I want to ask you, you mentioned Normatech, and I, I think that you know, and, and I think most of our readers or listeners know that, that we feel that recovery is as important as the training and that mo people don't give it enough credit for, you know, they don't take it seriously enough and don't really devote the time and energy. But I think your approach to recovery is one of the things that has allowed you to sustain this high workload high professional uh, workload as well. So give me a few of your, the things you've learned over the years in terms of uh, recovery. Sure. I think that one of the things um, that, that I haven't done too much recently, but as I think about the tortoiseance training, um, swimming is extremely uh, mm -hmm. underrated. As much as I am a terrible swimmer, it's probably one of the best recovery workouts that can be done. Uh, and when we were trying to put in those big ME workouts and holding a running load, uh, swimming was an exceptional thing to do, um, just to help freshen legs up and get back on, uh, hard workouts quicker. Um, more recently, uh, I made the investment in some Normatec boots, uh, which is sequential compression for the legs. Um, for me, I help, I think that that helps tremendously in between workouts and after long work days on my feet to just flush the legs out. Um, 
And, and I've found after using those for, for a period of time now that it's also incredibly important to stay adequately hydrated. Um, it's easy to, to be in a constant state of dehydration uh, as we suck down our caffeinated beverages during the day to keep our eyes open. Um, mm-hmm. but, but being adequately hydrated so that when you are using these kind of flushing methods, uh, that you're replenishing the tissues with the hydration that they need. And, and those would be the real key things um, for me at this point. Yeah, well, thanks for bringing up swimming. I know that you were a little resistant when I first broached the subject <laughs> to you. And, um, and, I, you know, and a lot of people are. I mean, I've had people who I've suggested that they swim. And in fact, you know, in the training program that you and I developed that we have on our website, Luke Nelson's Intro to Ultra uh, Run, there are swim workouts in there. And they're not really workouts. Yeah. They're swim recovery sessions. And I've had people say, I'm not a swimmer. Or what do you, you think? I'm not training for a triathlon. Why should I do Neither these? am I. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you can swim like a cat and still get a benefit by getting <laughs> in the pool. And, and my 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 thinking behind this is one of these things that I, I noticed it because one year when I was doing training for cross country skiing, someone talked me into doing some professional triathlons and I did a bunch of triathlons that summer. And of course I had a swimming background. So that part was really easy for me. But what I noticed when I was accumulating all this time running and cycling that I'd come out of those swimming workouts and and some of these were real workouts. They were hard, you know, many thousands of yards with intervals and all that sort of thing. I'd come out of them. I'd go into them with dead, heavy legs and I'd come out of them feeling like I could go for a run. And so when I was doing a lot later, as I began to get more and more into cross country ski racing, I started using swimming workouts as a recovery for me. And I think if you are a really competent, good swimmer, you can actually swim and swim fast, and that really speeds up the recovery process. But you don't need to be. You, if, even if you just hang on the side of the pool and flutter kick or you know, grab a pool of uh, kickboard or something like that and flutter kick around. And I think my, you're a, a medical person. You would probably tell me what you think of this idea. I think it's because you're horizontal, so the heart's not having to work as hard yet you're getting a lot of circulation. It kind of flushes out the legs. And I think there's a, the cooling effect of being in, you know, 70 degree water. Um, I think those two the combination of those two things where you're, you're working moderately hard. So your heart rate is elevated and you're pumping a lot of blood through the muscles. Um, but anyway, it's a, I know I hear very few people talk about using swimming as a recovery tool. And when I bring it up, you know, most people kind of Yeah, I mean, I I definitely was like that. And I probably swim a lot more like a cat than (laughs) an actual swimmer. Um, And, and and I think you're absolutely accurate with with why, you know, being horizontal, I think that the compressive factor of the water around your limbs as you push them into the water as you swim is super helpful. And and the advice that really rang to me, because I was resistant. Um, you, you kept putting those recovery workouts on. I was like, oh, we're going swimming again. This sucks. Like, um, but, but when you, when you said to me, just moving in the water, because I'd go to swim and I would, I would be frustrated because I couldn't swim well. And I'd be like, Oh, I see like this old lady's lapping me like four times every time I do one length. And, um, cause she swims and I flounder, but just moving. And when I accepted the fact that it's the movement in the water, uh, it allowed me to to calm down enough to, to get the recovery benefits instead of thrashing no, I think even, around. <laughs> I think even vertical running 
you know, yeah. people, you can get in the deep end of the pool and it's almost like treading water, but you're running your arms and legs removing and that can have a similar effect too. So, yeah. um, well, that's a great, we've, now we've given away pretty much all of our tricks, Luke. All secrets. They're all <laughs> yeah. out. Now, <laughs> my, my feeling is there are no secrets, you know, that, and the more that we get this information out there and that people give feedback and we play, you know, the, the way I've come up with most of this stuff is like you and I have over these years, we try stuff, we see if it works, you know, and if it works, we, we stick with it or we refine it. And if it doesn't work, we either reject it or we change it so that Alternate we can try it in a new way. And, um, I think that's a, it's important to stay curious about this stuff and not be just so close-minded and focused and say, oh, well, this is the way so-and-so trains, so I better train just like them or you know, I've got to run 100 miles a week. Or whatever. There's so many dogmas that exist out there about training that I, I think are, you know, some of them are valid for sure, but not all of them, and they may not be always valid for you and in your case. And so you know, each individual has to decide what's going to work best for them. Um, yeah, I think, that, I think that that's just the, 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 the approach to becoming a master of the craft and realizing that the, the master is the one who recognizes how little they know. Um, mm-hmm. and that there's still so much to be unlocked and discovered, um, by, by maintaining a curiosity and, and playing at the margins, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I used to use this with, uh, with skiers because as a cross country skiing is a highly technical sport. Um, and what I would say to them is that the, the skiers, as we were learning and doing all these really boring drills that have to, you know, balancing on one leg, going downhill for a long time and that sort of thing and skiing backwards downhill on one ski and just all these tricks we would do to become more adept at, at finding our center and balance over the skis was that the, the true master would be the person who has the most technique arrows in their quiver and can pull out the appropriate arrow for whatever the terrain and snow conditions dictated. And the more of those arrows you have in that quiver and the more masterfully, or the more you have mastered those techniques, the more easily you can move between one technique and, and another technique as terrain varies. And, and, and I think, you know, we don't think of running as, or mountain running perhaps as a highly technical sport, but it certainly is in terms of agility and balance and lateral movements and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's where, like you were saying, even with these muscular endurance workouts, as powerful of a training effect as they are, you got to get out there and run around in the mountains. If if you do all your running on flat ground, even if it's on dirt trails, that's not going to feel the same as when you're having to big, take big high steps over roots and rocks and that kind of stuff. And you really need to spend a lot of time training that sort of thing. I I love the concept of the, the multiple uh, arrows in the quiver. I think that that's something that very directly could apply to mountain running uh, when you start to pick it apart and it's in its detail. Um, that, that's an incredible analogy. Um, well, what haven't we touched on? Anything that we should, that you feel like I've overlooked? We haven't talked about your schemo racing history. I mean, kind of... <laughs> yeah, there was that, there was that stint of some schemo yeah. racing that I did. <laughs> was that, did you get, did you, were you, I know you spend all, you spend your winters as another thing that you pack into your life in the winter time, you are a ski patrolman. <laughs> and, um, yeah. if, as if things weren't already busy enough, I mean, I do know you get some good training in when you're on your skis. Um, out there yeah. patrolling, but yeah, tell us some, how did you end up getting into schemo? Um, and now obviously well, you had that snowboarding background, but 
Yeah. Well, and that's the interesting thing is I didn't, I didn't know how to ski until, uh, the, literally the season before I started schemo racing. Um, and that the story behind that itself is, is a little bit, uh, humorous is I had gotten a job working for a heli ski guiding operation in Utah, diamond peak heli ski. And I showed up for my first day, uh, to tail gun and I was on a snowboard and they're like, great, here are our snowboard guests. Um, but tomorrow it's all skiers. We'd like you to guide on skis. <laughs> thrown into the deep end of the pool. <laughs> I'd never skied before. <laughs> so I worked with the guests the rest of that morning. Uh, that afternoon I rented some skis and the next day I was on the helicopter with skis. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't pretty. Uh, I'm sure that the other guides had plenty to say for me when I wasn't around. Um, but I, I learned how to ski. I learned how to backcountry ski. And then because of the friends I was hanging around with, the bad influences in my life, I got invited to do a ski mountaineering race that next winter um, and did well. It was as I was on this uphill uh, ascent with my running career. Um, and the first season, I did a couple of the local races. And the next season uh, was at the national championships and finished just outside of the top 10. Um, and then over the of about the six years that followed, I made two uh, U.S. teams, uh, won a national championships, got second at a North American championships, uh, and, uh, internationally representing the United States at the um, international championships a couple of times as well. Do you think, is it compatible to have, could you, do you feel like you can race at a high level in those, these two seasons? How, how compatible is it to have that, those two sports? I think for a time it was compatible. Um, schemo training for me required a lot more time on skis um, than running does. Uh, part of that has to do with accessibility to skiing. I would have to drive about 30 minutes to the ski area where I could access snow regularly. Um, but the schemo workouts also just took more time to accumulate the appropriate volume. Um, I didn't feel like I could get the training effect as quickly as I could running. Um, and trying to maintain a high level of running and schemo racing at that time, there wasn't really a year round running season. And that has changed the international aspects of the sport as it has grown is there are running races year round. And in those days now, you know, eight, 10 years ago, uh, running kind of chilled out in the winter. And so I could focus on schemo and, mm-hmm. and then in the transition to running and then run all summer and fall and then go back to schemo in the winter. Um, I, I look at athletes that are trying to do both and carry running and schemo at feasible, not to be at a, at a high level competitive uh, mm-hmm. spot. It does seem like a challenge. I mean, we, we certainly see it in the more conventional sports. It's so rare to see somebody compete in the winter and summer Olympics um, at that, you know, at a high level like that, it's just, it really takes a year round focus. And, and yeah. one of the struggles I've had, you know, both with you and with working with Mike is coming off of a ski season where your fitness level is really high, but you haven't been doing much running and we have to be really careful starting to ease people back into running, especially when their fitness is high, because you feel really good and you could go out and run a whole bunch in april and yeah but the tendinous structures aren't attuned to it right exactly yeah and i think that's something that folks have to be cautious about i know i've said this before and i think you agreed with me on it that i believe when you've had an extensive layoff from running or you're new to the sport that it takes at least a hundred miles in your legs 
before you can actually consider that you can train as a runner. And I, I believe that that's because the, the tendons gain strength at so much slower rate than the muscles do. Um, and, I, and you probably could verify this because you cut them open all the time, but tendons aren't very well capillarized, <laughs> or very well capillarized are they? No, <laughs> they don't bleed at all. <laughs> yeah. And so they don't see the adaptation process nearly as quickly. And, you know, this is going back to your rock climbing. I mean, I've trained a lot, and I've had you probably, did you ever have any findy, finger injuries, you know, pulley tendons? Unfortunately, no. Nope. I, I stayed strong throughout, unfortunately. And those are pretty common with climbers. And it's and the reason is that, before our muscles gain strength pretty darn quickly. And I've actually read that the, the rate of, of, of conditioning, between, the difference between muscles and tendons is about one-seventh as fast in a tendon wow. as in a muscle. So you go in the gym and you climb really, or you hang on the hangboard and your fingers get really strong really quickly and you can start loading them and loading them and loading them, but the tendons haven't had a chance to develop the strength to hold together and that's when people hurt themselves. And it's the same thing happens with people that ramp up too quickly in their running mileage, um, after, especially after a season of ski racing where they're quite fit, but they, don't have, they haven't been pounding on their legs. Um, and I think you know, be, people need to be aware of that and be cautious with that when they shift from one sport to the other. Yeah, and I think that there's potential for athletes to cross over to do both, but they have to look at their seasons uh, realistically. And say, you know, after you get done with the schemo season, that you give it a, a, a good stretch of time to to train appropriately and to build up before you race. And then at the end of the running season, you have to give yourself appropriate time to recover before you jump into another season. Because right after another, after another, yeah. um, just too too much breakdown. I think. I yeah, I agree. I think I think rest is underrated. Absolutely. <laughs> Although you, you're probably one of those people that rest less than the average person, but uh, I think that's one of the most important things that you, that you brought to our relationship though. When we, when I started working with you, I remember some very hard conversations early on where uh, you would call me out for tr doing too much, trying to do too much and, and, you know, taking the appropriate amount of recovery and rest um, has been one of the most valuable things that, that, that I think that, that I've learned for sure. Yeah, that is a tricky thing because people who are attracted to the kind of things that we like to do are always type A personalities. And for them, <laughs> more is always better. More is more. <laughs> yeah, more is more until, until all of a sudden more isn't better. And so you don't do anything, right? Until the wheels come off. Yeah, <laughs> you're on the couch like me with the, your leg up and ice packs around your knee. Um, so... Well, Luke, this has been a great chat. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank um, you. Folks that are interested in knowing more about Luke, um, he has written a number of articles on our website. And so you, if you go and enter, just enter Luke Nelson into the search bar, you will see, you can learn more from him about some of his thoughts and some of the, some of the crazy things he's done. Um, and you are on social media too, I suppose, of some sort. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I occasionally surface on Instagram. You can find me at S. Luke Nelson. It's probably the best place on social media to find me. Good. Well, thanks again, Luke. It was good chatting. And um, we'll have to do this again sometime. Sounds great. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about what we do, please go to our website, uphillathlete.com.